Inside each one of your cells, there's a code. That code is your DNA, and it plays a role in determining a lot about you, like your height, the color of your hair, and how likely you are to get certain diseases. So what if you could rewrite it? That question has animated scientists for decades. But until recently, most of the methods they developed to edit DNA in living people were limited, messy, and expensive. Then, in 2012, scientists proposed a new technique that revolutionized gene editing. It's called CRISPR, and turns out it had been hanging out in nature all along, in bacteria. Certain species of bacteria have what amounts to a genetic scalpel that can be used to cut DNA. Scientists found that they could harness that scalpel and use it to modify stretches of DNA in just about any living organism, quickly and cheaply. Since CRISPR was developed, scientists have found loads of applications for it, from agriculture to zoology. But the question we started out with, can we edit human DNA safely and ethically? That's been more difficult to answer. We're now starting to see promising results in human trials that use CRISPR to treat genetic diseases. But we've also just seen a Chinese scientist get sentenced to three years in prison after he edited the DNA of twin girls. So with all that in mind, how does a parent of this technology think about it now? Jennifer Doudna helped develop CRISPR back in 2012. She's a biochemist at the University of Berkeley in California, and she is, in many ways, the public face of CRISPR. Today on the show... My interview with Jennifer Doudna, her reflections on the impact of CRISPR, its past, and its future. I'm Ariel Zimros. This is Reset. Okay, so we're here with Jennifer Doudna. Jennifer, in many ways, you've become the voice of this technology. So how do you cope with that? Just for me personally, you know, it's definitely, it's been a process. I, it's not something I, I feel like I came to comfortably. You know, I've had to really get, get used to it. And I've had a lot of helpful colleagues who have, um, you know, really worked with me to help me understand current regulatory frameworks in different countries and things of that nature, as well as scientific concepts that I also was not familiar with when this all started, namely understanding how human embryo development works and, you know, how gene editing may or may not eventually be useful in making changes uh, there. So I see myself as a student very much uh, in this whole process and, and trying to figure it out along with everybody else. That's interesting. Yeah, I feel like that's something that people won't necessarily think about. But given your background in biochemistry, yeah, there are some aspects of this that must have been very new for you. Definitely. Yeah. I embrace it, really, because I I love new ideas. I uh, if I have a fault as a scientist, I guess one of them is that I, you know, I maybe I'm interested in too many things, you know, and I I tend to work on a lot of different in a lot of different areas. And, and for me, this has just been so interesting to learn about all the different ways that a technology of this type can be deployed and, and to really think deeply about, you know, how we work together in the scientific community and beyond to ensure that it's used to help people and, uh, and not to create harm. 
So actually, along those lines, um, you were one of the first people to hear about what the Chinese scientist He Jiankui did. He created the world's first babies genetically edited with CRISPR, those two twin girls. When the girls were still embryos, he used chemical scissors to turn off a gene that makes people vulnerable to HIV infection. His research has been shut down by Chinese authorities. It's also raised questions about whether there will be a rash of new regulations to stymie scientific development or if scientists can regulate themselves. Can you tell me the story of hearing about that for the first time? Right. So this goes back to the fall of 2018. I had been organizing the the second international summit on human genome editing, which was scheduled to take place in November of 2018 in Hong Kong. And right before that meeting started, I received an email uh, that had the subject line, Babies Born. And it was from Dr. And it was a very short message explaining that he and his colleagues had done a clinical work to introduce embryos whose DNA had been altered with CRISPR mm-hmm. to create a pregnancy that resulted in the birth of twin girls with altered genomes in China. And immediately, of course, this raised many questions about both the science and the ethics of what had been done. Why, why you? Why email you about this? Yeah, well, I think for a couple of reasons. First of all, as we we just touched upon, you know, I've sort of become a public face of the technology. So that was one thing. And then also, I think Dr. He, you know, he had reached out to me previously and had even come to a small meeting we had at UC Berkeley uh, the previous, uh, I think, a few months before that. So our paths had crossed. But it at the same time, it was of course, quite shocking to, you know, to see this this very stark email and to realize that without our knowledge or certainly without any uh, previous uh, information that I had from him about his specific plans, you know, he had proceeded to do this work. Right. So what happened next? You received this email and then what? Well, I mean, uh, you know, I immediately called David Baltimore, who is a very prominent uh, professor at Caltech, who was the chair of the organizing committee for our meeting in Hong Kong, and explained the situation to him. And, you know, he, uh, you know, immediately understood that this whole, you know, line of work was probably going to become, whether we liked it or not, a, a focal point of the upcoming meeting. So I changed my uh, plane ticket. I I flew out that night to Hong Kong so I would have a little bit of extra time before the meeting got started. And I ended up meeting with Dr. He beforehand, before the meeting got uh, started. He was already scheduled to be a speaker at that conference. And so when we met, we talked about what he was planning to present and also just trying to understand what had been done, first of all, and also why. You know, what, what was his motivation? Why undertake something like this at this time. Were you satisfied with the answer? Well, I guess what was really kind of surprising to me, honestly, at the time was that although it seemed very clear to me and our colleagues that the work that had been done was was really inappropriate for a number of reasons and really unethical, you know, had really put people at risk needlessly, this was not something that uh, had really seemed to have occurred to him. Mm. He seemed to see himself more as a pioneer, you know, somebody who was the first to bring this to uh, people that might want to use it that way. That's interesting. I guess the first question that that comes to mind just hearing you say that is, do you think a lot about people having those same kinds of thoughts, just just going, oh, I want to be the first? 
Well, I think this is something that, you know, we always see in science and technology. It's certainly not unique to the world of CRISPR. You know, it's, uh, I think it's, uh, it's part of human nature. You know, there's a desire to be a pioneer. But, um, but I think what this is coming up against is a situation where, you know, you have a brand new technology that is not fully developed. It's not fully vetted. It certainly hasn't been broadly understood outside of scientific and technical circles and, and certainly wasn't ready to be uh, deployed, even just from a scientific perspective, much less uh, from an ethical or societal uh, perspective. And so I think, you know, this is just, you know, it's a it's a, a situation that is not unfamiliar, but certainly needs to be guarded against. It's sort of crazy to think how quickly this technology has been adopted and how fast it moved to human applications. From what I understand, this started out as a side project for you, right? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And in fact, I, you know, I had a few uh, I had some sleepless nights uh, wondering how I would pay for it. You know, how could I responsibly, uh, you know, use my research funding for this um, crazy little wow. project that maybe didn't have anything to do with anything. But, you know, I had a feeling about it, I have to say, because it, it certainly seemed like a system that had a lot of capability. I'll tell you a little story, you know, that kind of illustrates this. I, I, was, I was having dinner with my neighbor, who is a computer a programmer, software uh, engineer, and so he's not a biologist. And mm-hmm. I came home uh, one day from the lab, and I was, you know, my neighbor was coming over for dinner, and I was racing around the kitchen getting getting ready. And he knocked on the door, and you know, he said, "Oh, can I can I help you in the kitchen?" I said, "Sure, come on in." And he said, "So, you know, what's uh, what, what's cooking in the lab?" And I said, "Well, you know, we found this crazy protein in bacteria, and it's." I said, I said, it's, you know, it's programmable. You can program it. And he wanted to, he wanted to understand that. And so I, you know, I tried to explain it to him and he got it. You know, he said, oh my gosh, you mean you telling me that you can write a little uh, molecular message that goes into the cell and tells it to go to a place in the DNA of the cell and change it, change that code somewhere. And I said, yes. And not only that, I can decide where I want to change the code. You know, line 575, you know, word mm-hmm. word number 47, you know, I want to change that word. I can do it with this tool. And he said, wow. He said, that is going to be really useful. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it was the concept that even somebody outside of biology, once they understood a little bit about it, they could appreciate how, how useful that would be. The bigger implication to me was that this was going to be a really big deal. This was actually, you know, the start of something really big. And we couldn't tell at the time quite how big, but we knew it was going to be impactful. And I realized that nobody outside of, you know, a small circle of scientists, certainly at that time, had any idea. Try to imagine that. It's a very weird feeling, feeling like, you know, I am privy to information that I know is going to change everything. You know, it's going to affect everyone's lives eventually. And right now, I'm one of a small group that knows about it. It's a, it's a very weird feeling. And I that was one of the motivators for me, honestly, to um, think about how I was going to get out of the lab and really start talking about this more publicly. After the break... We talk about CRISPR's future and how Jennifer Doudna thinks about using this tool on humans. This is Reset. With the Capital One Saver card, you earn 4% cash back on dining and entertainment. 
That means 4% on milkshakes with the kids and 4% on music with your pals. You'll also learn 2% cash back at grocery stores and 1% on all other purchases. Now, when you go out, you can cash in. Capital One, what's in your wallet? We're back with Jennifer Doudna. Let's talk about using CRISPR in humans. Where do you stand on this? How should we think about using CRISPR on people? So it's very important to appreciate that there are fundamentally two different ways that CRISPR can be used clinically. And when we say clinically, by the way, what do we mean? Well, we're talking about using it in human patients, right, in people. One of those ways is to use CRISPR in embryos, okay? And if we do that, if that's done, then it creates changes to the DNA of embryos that become part of that individual if that embryo were to be implanted to create a pregnancy and, importantly, become heritable. They can be passed on to future generations in that family. The other way to use CRISPR clinically is to use it in individuals. That means changing DNA in the cells of an individual, not in a way that becomes uh, heritable by future generations, but just in a way that affects that individual patient. And that's something that I think, you know, from the very beginning, I have been a proponent of because of the potential to correct disease-causing mutations. Uh, What I've been really vocal about uh, avoiding is the former situation where you would use CRISPR Mm -hmm. to create heritable changes. So I've called for initially for moratoria on that and more recently for, uh, you know, global regulation around that. But um, for using it clinically in individuals, I think this is very, very exciting. It's something that I've advocated from the beginning because of the opportunity now to really for the very first time have a technology that deals with genetic disease at at the source, right? It's not right. treating the symptoms of disease. It's actually going in and saying, let's correct a gene that leads to disease and make it so that individual doesn't have uh, any basis for that disease in the future. What would it take for you to feel comfortable about a clinical trial that would change a person's DNA in a way that would allow that change to be passed on to that person's offspring? Well, I think first and foremost, one would have to identify a real medical need for that. And that real need is is uh, right now certainly difficult to identify. But You know, I think going forward, if there are real uh, situations where an honest assessment says, look, changing DNA is truly the best option for this family, for their children, et cetera, you know, I think one would have to really want to have a whole pipeline of regulatory guidelines and, and a pathway for proceeding that would ensure first and foremost, uh, safety uh, of that kind of application and then a way of following the health of the individuals if they were born uh, who had changes that were made in their DNA during uh, the embryo stage of development that you would want to be able to follow their health uh, outcomes over the course of their lifetime, really, especially in the early days of using the technology like that. You know, it's still early days with the technology. It's clear from even from the work that Dr. He Jung-Kui uh, presented, you know, the technology isn't ready yet for that kind of use. It's just not at a point where we can control it well enough to be safe. 
So there are a few human clinical trials happening right now using CRISPR, and one in particular is a treatment for sickle cell anemia. And to be clear, this treatment doesn't make a change in people's DNA that could be passed down to future generations. So when you hear that there are promising early results coming out of that trial, how do you feel? Deeply moved. Deeply moved. Because I I just, I think for any of us working in science, you know, the idea that our work could someday help someone with a healthcare situation that they and their families are facing. I mean, that's really uh, why we do our work. And so I, I feel very excited about the potential of the technology. Of course, I'm cautious. You know, I want to make sure that it proceeds in a in a very uh, appropriate, regulated fashion. And these trials that we're seeing uh, the early announcements for right now are going exactly down that path. They're using the established Food and Drug Administration guidelines for how we proceed to test things clinically with patients. And that's kind of the cusp of where we are right now. You know, there have been a couple of patients that have clearly been helped uh, so far using CRISPR. That's Mm -hmm. extremely exciting. And I think we're now at a point where the field is turning to, you know, the potential for larger studies that will establish uh, safety and, and effectiveness, hopefully, um, you know, in a, in a broader sense. And then, of course, you know, the big question will, assuming that those trials pan out, the big question will be, how do we make sure that this technology is affordable and accessible to people that need it? And that's really the challenge that I'm now uh, thinking more and more about and working on at the Innovative Genomics Institute. Do you often think about sort of the potential ways that this technology down the line could end up being used? Do do you often worry about things like eugenics? I think the potential risk for for applications that would lead to sort of eugenic, uh, you know, outcomes, controlling genes and populations, I think that's frankly, right now, still at the level of science fiction. It's just, you know, it's not something that's going to happen anytime soon. That being said, I think it's important that we right now grapple with the reality that we have in our hands a tool that in principle does enable that, right? It does allow right. control of genes and, and control of, of genes uh, in families, you know. And, um, and I think that, that it's essential that we be tackling that issue right now, not, not uh, running from it, but saying, look, this is a powerful tool. It has this potential. And we need to already be, be thinking about how uh, it could be used safely and how do we appropriately regulate it. So the reason why I, why I wanted to ask you about that is because although the way that people think about eugenics, that is probably extremely far off and still, as you say, part of the, the, the realm of sci-fi. Some people are very excitedly talking about CRISPR as a technology that could be used to prevent certain conditions. And I want to ask you about folks with disabilities. You know, you, sometimes you hear people talk about fixing, and I'm, I'm using quotes here, fixing deafness, fixing conditions like dwarfism. And folks who are part of that community really get worried when they hear those things because not everyone who is deaf or not everybody who's a dwarf feels like they need to be fixed. They don't feel broken. Where do you stand on that? Should we consider these questions when we're looking at where to apply gene editing technologies? I think, you know, this your question really, to me, brings up broader sort of considerations about really kind of fundamentally, you know, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to embrace the diversity that we see across human cultures, uh, human societies? 
to me, that's one of the real joys of life. You know, I mean, I work at a public university. We have students from all over the world coming from, you know, every background you can imagine. So I think that to take it to an extreme, you could imagine a world where, you know, human beings have been sort of homogenized in a way, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, we have sort of a standard set of genes that we want people to inherit. And, And I think that you know, that, again, that's that's really in the realm of science fiction. But I think it, you know, imagining that helps to put in perspective what we're really talking about here. You know, a situation where suppose that in the next decade or two, parents could go to an in vitro fertilization clinic and they could choose from a menu of genes. You know, they could say, well, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you, you can choose this, that and the other trait for your child. Um, you know, would this be a good thing or not? Uh, what if we could eliminate deafness, for example? Would that be a good thing or would it eliminate some of the richness from the world? Uh, it's a hard question to answer. And I, I think it has to remain in the hands of, you know, of individuals at some level. And I also think, you know, but first and foremost, we absolutely have to be able to, you know, ensure that any technology used in that way is safe and and does what what, you know, works as advertised. So, you know, when you when you hear these people talk about things like like eliminating deafness, there have been trials that, that have been conducted on mice having to do with deafness and CRISPR. And I'm wondering, you know, where do, do you have a position? Do you do you stand? You know, have you figured out how you feel about this truly? I think it's a very individual choice to me. I mean, um, if you're asking me, you know, if I were a, a prospective parent and, and, and this was a decision that I needed to make about my, my child, you know, what would I do? Boy, that's a, that's a hard one. I mean, I'm someone that, you know, I didn't uh, need to use in vitro fertilization. I have a son. I have a wonderful son. And I, I see all the, all the quirks that he has and, you know, things that, you know, are just, just make him a wonderful person. And, and uh, I think, you know, there's a, there's a joy to that. At the same time, if you knew ahead of time somehow that, you know, if I had a, you know, a, a genetic disorder that I knew he would be inheriting in some way and I could prevent it, well, I think, of course, as a parent, I would have that desire to, to prevent it. And so how you, you know, I think these are, these are some of the really interesting and really challenging questions that are now in front of us, given that we have a technology that in principle, at least, you know, in the net over the coming years, will will provide some of that type of capability to people. It's it's a really profound and really interesting question, but it's hard to answer. So there's a question that I've been wanting to ask you for a while. Um, in your book, Crack in Creation, you related a specific dream that you had. Do you remember what that dream was? I believe you might be talking about my Hitler dream. <laughs> <laughs> I might be. So that was a, it was a, a bit of a watershed moment for me. To summarize it, it the idea, you know, in the, in the dream, I was walking into a, a backlit room and saw a, a, a figure sitting in a chair with their back to me. And a colleague uh, said to me, I'd like you to explain uh, CRISPR technology to this person. And the person in the chair turned around and I saw that it was Hitler. He had sort of a pig snout. It almost looked like a, the kind of uh, crazy, you know, genetic uh, weird combination that you maybe could imagine coming out of something like genome editing. And it was a, you know, it was really a terrifying moment in that dream. And I, I, it's the kind of dream where, you know, I woke up kind of sweating and in a shock. Right, because in this dream, I, I, I think what happened is that 
this Hitler figure starts asking you questions about the technology and says that it's amazing, right? That Hitler is excited about using CRISPR, basically. That's, that's right. And it was a very creepy feeling in the dream of, you know, feeling icky, right? I don't like, I don't want to be here. I don't want to be talking to this person about this technology. Um, but recognizing that there I was and, and, and having to deal with it. And I think it was, you know, it was really a moment when I, a lot of things, a lot of ideas and thoughts that I had been having came together for me. And I realized, you know, this, it's sort of back to the, what we spoke about a little bit earlier about, you know, having this feeling that I'm one of the few people that appreciates something that's very, very profound that's happened, in this case, this technology that has so much potential um, to do good, but also to cause harm. And and so I, I think, you know, for me, after that dream, I started to work much more actively to be much more public about the technology and, and think about how we could work together to ensure responsible use. Now that you've been able to sort of be really open about the technology, it it kind of seems like you really value transparency as a way to move forward and and figure out how to deal with this thing that we have now. Do you think you'd still have that dream today? Is is that still relevant? Is it still relevant? I think it's certainly still relevant, but I I suspect that I... So I haven't had another dream like that, which is maybe telling. Um, And and I think part of it is because of, um, you know, sort of the sense that I'm not alone, that, you know, there's many people now that appreciate the the, both the power and the and the risk of the technology. And and I really do feel that there's a a global community of people that are working to ensure Mm. that it's used responsibly. It's no guarantee, but I think it's the best chance that we have to really, you know, try to be ensure uh, transparency. One of the issues with the Ho Jung Kui's work was that that was done secretly. And I think that shouldn't happen in the future. Do you think that we're going slow enough with CRISPR? Boy, how to answer that. (laughs) Uh, Well, I guess the first thing I would say is that, you know, the the technology is so enabling for scientists that there's no way to put the genie back in the bottle, at least uh, at the level of research. And then, of course, at a whole different level, there's the um, very tangible now opportunities to affect people in positive ways that that suffer from genetic disease that is, I think, you know, very, very exciting, very tantalizing with the technology. So I guess, you know, in the end, I don't think it's moving too fast, but I do think it's moving fast <laughs> for sure, and, and that it really does make it imperative that uh, the scientific community, um, you know, deal right up front with the the, uh, various challenges that we face to make sure it's used safely. Jennifer Doudna is a biochemist at UC Berkeley. Jennifer, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. This is Reset, and I'm Ariel Zimros. If you want to follow me on Twitter, you can find me at ADRS. You can also reach the Reset team by emailing reset at vox.com. We publish episodes three times a week on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Sundays. So if you haven't already, subscribe to the pod. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or in your favorite podcast app. And if you like what you hear, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps. 
We'll be back on Thursday. Later, nerds. <laughs>